0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome to another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. My name is Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Fleming himself. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I'd like to say that I have the remnants of the hurricane here in Paris as it's uh, raining outside as uh, we record today's podcast, but... The residents of Texas have had far more rain than they could have possibly wished for. And the premise of our conversation today, as always during these episodes, Dr. Fleming says something that might be disturbing to most people, and then he explains himself. And I would probably frame, it, frame your point uh, on this discussion today, Dr. Fleming, about the hurricane that the United States the president of the United States does not owe any particular responsibility to the residents of Houston uh is this the surely you must be joking dr fleming well i yeah, that that's um that's that's a
0: crude statement of my position but uh accurate enough I, actually i was um earlier this morning i was uh, talking on the phone to a friend in corpus christi who's a doctor there and and uh and unfortunately who's um Whose husband, at the same time, is gravely ill, so uh, you know she's she's experiencing, uh, you know, the, the sufferings of Job, but uh, ridicule. But at the same time, ridiculing the incessant whining of people demanding relief. So uh, it it, it there, there still are, there still are a uh, a certain number of Americans. I would say perhaps as much as a third, or a bit more than a third. Who understand that it is not the it is not the responsibility of the federal government to make them happy or to provide them with necessities that we we all have to make choices the uh, there are three aspects of this question that is of repudiating the notion that somehow every time you stub your toe the federal government flies <laughs> in emergency relief I don't mean to make light of this, this is, I've lived through hurricanes, I've spent much of my life on the on the uh, Atlantic coast. It, it, they're quite terrifying and quite serious and involves a, a major loss of uh, life and property and, and serious disruption. But uh, there are three things to look at, I think. One is the pragmatic issue of how good, how effective, how cost effective. Is the federal government in providing relief to uh, during disasters? There is the constitutional legal question: What actual legal responsibility or authority, under our under the Constitution of 1787, does uh, does the federal government have? I mean, of course, they can make the federal courts, uh, along with Congress and the executive branch, can say anything they like and make up any imaginary powers because they are, you know, sort of the ground of their own being. By, simply by saying, it's like the marriage ceremony, by saying, I do or I will, you become uh, a married man who had been single until you said those magic words. The president or the Supreme Court can say magic words and all of a sudden they become reality even though they're alive. And then there's the deeper, there's the moral and spiritual dimension of this. But so let, let's start at the most basic level. Stephen, do, do do we know, can you tell me some area in which the federal government, other than uh, stepping outside its assigned functions, which are to provide for the common defense, et cetera, to, to, to guard the border and to provide, you know, uh, at least help in, in a stable currency, even that's not made clear. Uh, policing, uh, you know, uh, po- you know, pol- policing federal uh, uh, things where the federal government has jurisdiction, where they step outside that and assume powers like to provide welfare or food stamps or housing. Can, can you tell me some place where they've done a better job than a corrupt local government would do? <laughs> um. It's, no. The Feds are a little bit like the United Way. You know, you give money to the United Way, and right off the top, you know, 30 40, 40 50% goes to the United Way to pay for their expenses. So whatever the figure is. Let's say, in this case, it's 40%. So 60% then goes off to the Red Cross, which which skims then about under 85 to 90% of the money. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, out of a million dollars maybe a thousand dollars or a couple of thousand dollars maybe even 10,000 dollars get to the um get to the designated recipients. Well the federal government according to most studies does a worse job than that. That is the 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 very corrupt system of uh semi private, you know, uh tax exempt charities like the red cross and uh, doctors without borders and caritas and all these organizations they're notoriously corrupt and ineffective but they but they do they provide a much better job than the us government in most welfare programs now we're talking about we're talking about the provision of charitable relief this is a welfare program most welfare programs it's lucky if 10% of the money expended reaches the intended recipient well where, you ask, does the money go? Well it goes to grafted corruption, to vendors who pay, who give bribes to Congress and to people in the executive branch uh, it's to, to, so that they can get the contracts, uh, corruption within of crooked bureaucrats in administering it, but never, never uh, seriously uh, downplay the importance of the stupidity and incompetence in, in of the people who work for the federal government. And of course, these people are mostly, it's an army, a vast army of people with college degrees, social workers, bureaucrats, lawyers, sucking up all, all of this vast tax money. I'd say it was a joke, but you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly poor man. I think if I look at state, federal, and local taxes, and sales taxes, I pay 55, 60 percent of my income to, to government. I don't know what I get out of it, out of an arrogant police, inefficient postal system, and a, and a, and a crumbling infrastructure. So it's similar to the scandal which is there with uh, these international relief agencies. These have been well documented in book after book that if you give to Caritas or Oxfam, and not only does very little of them, or to the Clinton Foundation. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that, that that's an above that's an open and above board scam. <laughs> but these things, you know, in in one famous instance, some charitable group in Minnesota decided they wanted to do some relief for drought-stricken Ethiopia, which was, you know, the average daily temperature was 105. And so they sent them lots, lots of nice, warm, woolly blankets such as they enjoy in northern Minnesota. I mean, a, a totally few, and to, every one of those blankets, of course, costs hundreds of dollars because of all the middlemen taking, taking their, their cut out of, out of this, uh, this pie. So um, the United States, of course, is not a, it's not a country in any normal sense. It's a vast empire. You know, of about 300 million people, you know, stretching over you know the, the, the middle uh, the middle of a of a vast continent, we're we're a country more like the European Union, or the old Soviet Empire, than we are like any uh, any a country like France or Argentina or or something like that, and so the the, the larger the scale of power and and wealth redistribution. The greater the degree of corruption and inefficiency. I mean, I I know that say if you went down, to, there are people in Texas right now in the Houston area and elsewhere. They're out they're out in their, they're out helping their neighbors because they actually care about their neighbors. They're organizing flotillas of of boats, bringing in supplies, getting people out. I don't think the Houston government is a a terribly efficient government. It never has been in the past. But, I mean, they're doing their bit. Texas is doing its bit. And, you know, you're going to have, in in any case, a lot of church groups coming down there and helping out. And pragmatically speaking, these uh, local initiatives are, are much more effective than anything the federal government could do. The federal government gave them maybe a year of tax relief or two years of tax relief, that would probably be the most effective uh, operation. But really, when it comes down to it, the Feds are only good at doing a few things, like like uh, defending our border, which they refuse to do, or, uh, or uh, defending the country with an effective military machine, which one can reasonably say they do a good job of, even though the, the cost is is bloated uh, uh, way out of any any proportion.
1: Well, I mean, disaster relief is just one aspect. Uh, Dr. Fleming, as you're noting, of functions that the government has taken over that were traditionally handled by benefactors who could take the these are all loss leaders, none of these are money making ventures, be they education, healthcare, disaster relief. this is These are things that require a massive amount of money and benefactors to sustain that and a secular exercise of, the, of these powers I would say is the best of a bad job. If we look back to who traditionally handled this, it would be the church. The church had benefactors that had tax uh, privileges that allowed it to simply take care of that and nuns and priests don't need salaries. When you do need uh, salaries, benefits, pensions, all of those costs bloat and now it becomes, as you say, very inefficient. Yeah, you know,
0: if you look at, um, I've, I've been, I, I, I spent a lot of my spare time studying Roman history and when the empire collapsed, you know, in the course of the late fifth and early sixth century, you know, what was left was the church And, you know, the empire, when it had taken over some of these, had had assumed some of the responsibility for taking care of widows and orphans of citizens and military veterans, the system had always been, you you know, Trajan sends out an edict to the cities, the communities of Italy, saying from now on you will provide for food, for orphans, but you can do it any way you want to. Some, some paid a, a monthly stipend, some raised the food themselves and, and, you know, and bought it, some, you know, they, they had a, very, a variety of systems. But Trajan, a, an extremely effective, uh, a great soldier and an effective administrator, Trajan understood that, the, that it, the people in Rome were really not competent to tell the people on Lake Como how to run their affairs and how to do this. Now, if you if you didn't do it and you stood up to Trajan and said we're not handi- we're not helping any stinking orphans, then you, you could be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but still, it was a decentralized system. In the um, at the end of the sixth century A.D., when the empire really couldn't help at all because it's headquartered in Constantinople and the Goths had come in and then the the far more primitive and savage Lombards, in Rome itself, of course. The uh, these deaconries across the city were turned into uh, uh, welfare centers. That is, handing out food, but also administering uh, legal problems. And of course, a lot of this was done by uh, one of the greatest popes, if not the greatest pope in history, Saint Gregory the Great. I mean, he was not only a, a very interesting theologian and writer, but and a great diplomat. But he uh, actively organized, and by the way using a lot of his own wealth for, and his own estates in Sicily, he organized the provision of food to the poor in Rome. The, this, I'm not saying that government can never do anything, but the more local the government is, the more effective it's likely to be, and even if it's part of an empire, the empire should simply say this is your responsibility, if you need some f- financial help we'll give it to you, but we're not going to impose this huge burden of imperial bureaucracy upon the city of Houston.
1: Well, alas, there's no more uh, em- there's no more emperor, even though there's still an empire, Doctor Fleming.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's the, an empire. At least with an emperor, at least implies uh, an enormous respect. You know, I'm, I don't want to. I'm not going to get into this at all. But one of the things you read. From the end of the first century uh, AD, and then you get it over and over and over in writers like Plutarch and Dio Chrysostom. You get this argument that the the, the emperor is the shepherd of his people. He rules by law, and he he devotes his life to to uh, making it possible for people to live lives with in security and prosperity because he is a shepherd and not a tyrant a tyrant rules by his own will and by his own uh, to feed his own vanity, whereas the shepherd is self-sacrificing, and of course this is very familiar uh, language from those who are Christian. But the, the, um, to get away from the mere pragmatic issue, which is the least important of these issues, uh, you get to the uh, constitutional question, and here of course it's quite clear, there is nothing in the Constitution that would indicate that the federal government was to take over this the the duties and authority of the separate states in managing disasters or uh, or uh, helping uh, people in need. I mean, they had they had states, and so the states in turn chartered cities even cities, by the way, which existed before the state did, but they still rechartered them so they could preserve the fiction that the state creates the city. So the states are the parties to the contract, not individual human beings or or citizens of the United States. These states had the power within them uh, to to do it. One of the things I don't understand, I've talked to, you know, People, I won't say friends, because I've given up being trying to be friends with people who want to steal my money. <laughs> How do you justify, let us say, taxing the people of Rockford, Illinois? We've got, uh, let's just say, you know, we've got, uh, let's say, in this county, there are maybe three, three or four hundred thousand people, maybe half a million people. <clears throat> we're on an, we're sort of in an average community in a slightly below average state. So you tax these people. Uh, take a huge amount of their money away through federal taxes and various other regulations and you give it to say the people in Nebraska and you tax the people in Nebraska to pay for the people in New Jersey who are taxed to pay for the people in Alabama. Now there's only so much money here, so exactly what is the advantage of having a central collection agency, especially when you consider that as in the case of the United Way, the central collection agency is taking a, a large percentage of the boodle, so it would be you know you're, you're not you're not increasing the wealth of any of these places. And I'll tell you one of the answers, quite apart from the corruption involved and the amount of money these people get, and quite apart from the fact that it enhances their power, which is the main object of the welfare state to buttress the power of the ruling class, but quite apart from that, like. Why do we prefer state rules on education? Why does the education establishment want first large school districts and then then a large state establishment and then a federal system? And the answer is because when you're taxed at the federal level, all you know is you're losing $10,000 a year to the federal government or 20 or 30 or 40. A rich guy like you, Stephen, probably has to pay huge taxes. I, I'm in a much less enviable position. But, you see, all you know is that when the government comes in and builds a school, or the state does this for you, or the feds do that for you, you're grateful for the help. And you don't look at your checkbook and, and, and realize how much they've taken. Similarly, you know, when the tax time comes along and, oh, wonderful, I'm getting $600 back for the government. Uh, in, on my federal income tax. Well, how much did you pay out in order to get this 600? And by the way, are they paying you interest on this money they have wrongfully withheld from you? You have to pay them one and a half percent per month? No. You, don't, you know, they, they, they don't pay you interest. So we have a constitutional system which invests vast powers, in fact, sovereign powers within the states and those states are supposed to be self-governing and self-sustaining. It doesn't mean there's no possible role for the state getting a loan from sister states or even from the federal government. And there are certain specific things which the federal government probably is justified in doing, though it wasn't really envisioned in the, in the 18th century. For example, keeping the, maintaining the harbors uh, and, the, and the coastline so that uh, for international trade. One of the big issues in the 19th century was was, uh, maintaining the the Mississippi River as a navigable river. And the question was, was this up to the states who would be bickering over who has responsibility because it's a very long river. And of course, you've got the port of New Orleans involved, which was uh, a a very great and very important uh, center for international trade. And the answer is, finally, even the, oh, the, the greatest of the state's rights philosophers of the 19th century, John C. Calhoun, even he acknowledged that well, there was a, it was a significant federal role. So when it comes to maintaining things for the purpose of national security, for rebuilding them, for uh, helping with those things, then the federal government has a role. Other than that, constitutionally, the federal government has no role. All libertarians know the sto- famous story of Davy Crockett. You know this story, Stephen? You
1: must. Yes, I learned it from you, Dr. Fleming.
0: Okay. Well, Crockett was in Congress, you know, the, you know, the, the great man in the coonskin hat that, who died at the Alamo. He got elected to Congress, and he, uh, he voted for a bill which was giving uh, relief to victims of, I believe, a fire in Georgetown, which is right there near the, uh, near the nation's capital and when he went back home to campaign one of his constituents abused him for having spent money on the people of Georgetown. And, he, and Crockett explained how needy they were and how destructive the fire was and the man just stared at him and finally said it weren't your money, Davy." This is what I try to tell uh, like rich relatives and friends who say well can't you, re- can't you understand we need to give of our substance in order to help the poor, the downtrodden, the needy? And I say, well, if that's your personal hobby, you go right ahead. But what you're saying is, because the very rich pay, all the, the almost rich pay a lot of taxes. A lot of the super rich don't pay any taxes. But what they're saying is, this is something they believe. It's their religion. They believe in, pro- in providing welfare to strangers who live 2,000 miles away. Well, it doesn't happen to be part of either my moral or religious code, but these people have me over a barrel. And if I don't pay, then I go to jail. So, you know, that, that is the system. And, of course, this is uh, anticipating the, uh, the moral dimension of the question. But that is what is wrong with the system, and that is that a left-wing revolutionary elite that controls our universities, controls our media, controls the political process, controls a public education, Dictates this uni- this theory of universal philanthropy, and then, by an amazing act of magic, tries to pretend that it's traditional Christian teaching, which it is not. But that's that's another show, obviously. So, the constant on on pragmatic level and the constitutional level, the government owes a, the federal government owes a minimum uh, of support to a place like Houston or New Orleans, there are some legitimate things, and obviously taking care of military bases, taking care of port facilities, all of these are routinely now part of the uh, federal system, part of the federal purview. Taking care of me in, in my house, uh, no, that is, that is up to me, it is up to my neighbors, it is up to the town I live in, it's up to my church.
1: Are you ranking these, Dr. Fleming, in terms of effectiveness in an argument or, or in some other order? Because I, I'm wondering, is the constitutional question really of importance to people in the United States anymore? I mean, what is that thing?
0: The constitutional question is not important to anybody virtually, except for those who have studied the document, and even they are mostly lying about it. But, But what is important is that our constitutional system was derived partly from the experience of living in uh, thirteen separate colonies, partly from uh, long-standing medieval traditions which were being revived here, but also because people like Adams and Jefferson had studied how effective countries and nations work, and one of the things they concluded by this study is, uh, is that that uh when sovereignty was divided into competing units such as the three branches of government advocated by uh Montesquieu the, the he thought it was the British government but he sort of got that wrong the legislative judicial and executive branches but also that the states were were, were sovereign parties to the contract and that this would uh this would uh ensure that uh, tyranny did not develop, this was Jefferson was particularly strong on this, but really Adams often gets a raw deal. Adams did not believe. In a In a particularly strong central government, he most of what he said that people interpret this way, Southerners interpret this way he was he, he explicitly tells us he was talking about the government of Massachusetts, not the government of the United states so he he was a great states rights man at least when it came to New England. His son was perhaps a different story mm. so but so this vision of this Jeffersonian at Adam's vision of a decentralized commonwealth, of course, has very much in common with uh, the vision of Althusius, Johannes Althaus, which is based on his, his view of the, of the Holy Roman Empire, but it also has a lot in common with the, underst- with the Christian understanding of Thomas Aquinas, which, of course, goes back to Aristotle. So, the way the federal system was set up it is very compatible with the highest political and Christian, social and moral teachings, which continue to be uh, until not too long ago. Even John the uh, 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, was very emphatic about uh, Catholic subsidiarity. That is, that it is it is wrong for higher levels of government or or authority to seize from lower levels. The, the the authority to make decisions and to provide for welfare, and uh, so it is it is not just an it, it it's an historical accident perhaps that the United States developed such a system, but this system is rooted in human nature and even in the say the success the great success of the Roman Empire is that it was a de- decentralized confederation of city states. And this is often not understood by uh, people who don't study that, that that subject in in much detail. So our system, although it's been corrupted and turned into a, a, a Jacobin state, and that began, of course, with the with the America's greatest Jacobin, Abraham Lincoln, who is the sort of the uh, seems to have formed his ideas on those of Robespierre. The uh, since then. Of course, it's, it's gone through, it's, it's, much, it's more much worse off than it was under, in 1865. But nonetheless, the vision, the, the vision of uh, the, the, the so-called framers of the Constitution, that vision is one that is compatible with everything we know about human nature and human social life and human politics. So although, yeah, nobody believes it, it is still something always to bear in mind.
1: On the question of, of practicality relating to the states, I'm thinking particularly of a state like Montana, which is possessed of these beautiful national parks, but is a net taker from the Treasury. Right? There are states like this. Louisiana may be less so than Montana, but would, would you argue that these uh, states should either revert to territories or should not have become states in the first place since they were unable to be self-sustaining?
0: Well, it's, uh, each state is a separate issue. You know, John Randolph thought that uh, we should not add new states to the Union, but should allow new, new confederations to, uh, to form. In retrospect, that's not so terrible an idea. Having four or five regional republics uh, would have probably made a m- much more sustainable kind of political system. Uh, the, um, the trouble is Louisiana is a, very much a net taker. All the states of the Deep South Partly because of their ethnic composition, and uh, the, the enormous amount of welfare they receive, and the great success of their politicians in getting getting boodle sent back to their districts, um, so South Carolina, Alabama, Louisiana, these are and Mississippi, these are all uh, they're they're great gainers under the federal system. And it's very funny when Southern conservatives talk about wanting to break it up, but I say, but you do understand, that you're getting a lot back out of it. Uh, the One of the problems is, where did we ever get the idea that the federal government had a right to own property within the states? This is a monstrosity. When the states, you see, when states in entering the Union, according to the Constitution, enter in on an equal footing, but when in the western states, when you get west of the Mississippi, the and in the case of Alaska, it's a majority of the state, the federal government seized control Without any justification, of a, of vast amounts of land, and you know we could set up for national parks for this for that, and and of course confiscating a lot of the wealth so that the people in Montana, and in Wyoming and in western states, they have problem developing their resources. They have land use problems because the federal government owns so much of the rangeland that now that uh, now that the Green Party seems to have taken over both the Republicans and the Democrats, it means that ranchers have a lot of trouble leasing land for their cattle because some environmentalists will come in and say, "Well, the South African blowfly is threatened." <laughs> you know, if you uh, if you do this, so. <clears throat> Uh, I, I think really that if I, were, if I were the dictator, and that's just about what it would take to restore freedom in this country is somebody like Augustus, that um, the dictator would, should give all this land back to the people. Now, I am in favor, by the way, I'm in favor of maintaining most of the national park lands and, uh, and forest land, but they should be run by states. They should also stop this ridiculous idea of turning them into theme parks. We want to preserve wilderness. Fine, let it be wilderness. And let people go in and camp who are willing to hike in. But the idea of setting up vast parking lots for campers and and rec-v's and having rangers and guided tours and all the stuff that goes on in Yellowstone and Yosemite... It's not just that it costs the government money, and that's why they're having to charge for access. It's simply wrong. What are we? What are we? What, the, uh, Disney World already exists. We don't need <laughs> to create Disney Wilderness World.
1: Well, it's funny you mention that, Doctor Farnham. I, I remember reading that John Muir was somewhat amused that Thoreau came for about two two hours to check out uh, Yosemite and then scurried off. <laughs> and uh, and Muir, Muir wondered how much uh, the man really liked uh, the wilderness after all. But this sort of thing isn't new.
0: Thoreau lived less than a mile from Mama's house, and he went there for dinner virtually every night. <laughs> well,
1: it's it's nice it's nice when you have some things handled, isn't it, Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> to 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 your third point. So you have talked about the pragmatic question, the, the constitutional question, the moral question. I I. Pretty studiously try to avoid news of any kind other than what I might take from the Fleming Foundation website. But I am on Twitter and I ran into a story yesterday about Joel Osteen. And it seems oh, yes. that people have managed to try to virtue shame Mr. Osteen. Now, obviously, I'm a Catholic, not a Protestant. I'm not a fan of megachurches in general. However, I do find it somewhat humorous that people who probably have no belief in God, uh, no belief in churches of any kind, want to hold Austin to some standard that they don't hold, the, hold themselves to.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, there are two very funny things about this. One, one is the, uh, the, 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 the American leftists who are always telling you, well, you know, if you were a real Christian, what you would do, you would favor gay marriage. If you were a real Christian, you would sacrifice ninety percent of your income to help people in Africa. If you were a and is it, what I don't say if you were a real atheist. I don't say if you were a real communist. You're, you know, you 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 have your own belief system and you act on it. Well, but see, the definition of what we call liberal in America, which is a which is a leftist. The definition is that they not only know what they believe, they know what you believe better than you do. And they know how you're supposed to behave.
1: If you were a real communist, you'd be shooting people in the streets. (laughs) Believe me, that day will, they look forward to that with great (laughs) eagerness.
0: The, uh, the trouble, but on the other side that's funny, the idea that you can virtue shame Joel Osteen, <laughs> the idea that he has any concept of right and wrong other than becoming rich and famous, are they barking up the wrong? <laughs> uh, Osteen's church holds 17,000 people. Can you believe what the take would be? Or let's just say the average, the average slob is putting $20 into, this, into the Elmer Gantry uh, memorial collection plate.
1: <laughs> Well, that might be uh, doing you know, a disservice uh, to Elmer Gantry, but go, but go on. Yes, go on. <laughs>
0: well, actually, uh, in the novel, uh, Gantry, ha- Gantry, although a fraud, has some belief. He's <laughs> right. a flawed person. Whereas God, you have to just watch Osteen for three minutes on television. You know that that grin, the the the, the used car salesman grin. Trust me, you can trust me. Well, I mean, uh, and the fact that people who think they're Christian go to these joints and dance and carry on and hoot and holler. It is what emptiness must exist within their lives that they could be seduced by such a transparent fraud. You know, some of... There's a great Fellini movie, Il Bidone, which is like the big swindle, where Broderick Crawford plays somebody who's supposed to be a monsignor. He's, he's He's not a clergyman at all. And he goes around... Sucking people in by saying the church has discovered a great source of tr- ancient treasure on your property. If you just put up five thousand dollars, we will then give you ninety percent of it, and you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And these poor peasants, of course, they stay scrape and save and mortgage their home, and they and they and they give Broderick Crawford the money. Well, <clears throat> Broderick Crawford, believe me, had, would have a lot to learn from mega church preachers in this country. But mm. right. One of the uh, questions, which I always wonder, people get mad at me, and they say, look, for one reason or another, I'm stuck here in one of, the, one of the worst states of the Union, Illinois, which has one of the worst governments, it's terribly in debt, you know, I, I pay high taxes for low services, I have a rotten climate, a, a, a charmless city, although there are some nice neighborhoods, and I'm perfectly happy living here, but you know, <clears throat> then... hurricane hits New Orleans whose motto is let the good times roll where they live in charm and beauty and then you know every 30 40 years they got to face a disaster well that's 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 the that's what you that's what you pay for by living in New Orleans by enjoying great food having a good time every night even good traditional jazz and somehow the poor working stiffs in in, uh, in Rockford have to pay to support your your fun-loving lifestyle in New Orleans. I mean the idea is preposterous. And the same thing is true all along the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast. You know, I I spent my high school and college years in the Carolinas. Believe me. Believe me. I I and I've lived, uh, you know, I I've, I've sat out hurricanes. I even went swimming during a hurricane, which is about to maybe one of the top 10 dumbest things I've ever done. But you know, the idea that, so, all right, you know, our, the, the house we owned on the Isle of Palms, I don't think, well, it, it got pretty much battered uh, in uh, in the 1980s. But, you know, that's the price you pay for living with beauty, charm, and good seafood. <laughs> and if you're not willing to pay that price, don't live there. So the whole idea you know, I'm I pay I pay a much I pay a big price by living in Rockford, which has none of the attractions which either the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast has. We can I my my daughter lives in North Carolina and it's uh it's just a, oh yeah, well we're she's we're going to stay with my mother-in-law on at Wilmington in at the beach off Wilmington. You know. This is every other weekend. I don't get to go to the beach every other weekend. So you see, it's, like, it's sort of like affirmative action. I remember when there was a big affirmative action case. <clears throat> a blind law student at Duke demanded that he be given tutors to read the text for him so that he could get through law school. Well, what about, let's say this kid was really smart. What about somebody with a low IQ? Can't he get somebody to take the test for him or prep him? Why doesn't... Every, we all have a different bundle of talents and abilities and opportunities and we make choices within that. You choose to live on the Gulf Coast, uh, you pay your insurance, or and you, you, you live in a town, you make sure that town is insured, and you, you sacrifice a certain amount of your income just as I sacrifice a huge amount of the potential pleasure I could get out of everyday life by living here in Rockford. <laughs>
1: You know, uh, Dr. Fleming, every time I spend some time with you in Rockford, I think to myself, it ain't so bad. I mean, you're never going to get a hurricane in Rockford.
0: True, no hurricane. I remember when I moved from uh, uh northern Wisconsin where the 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 worst thing you're likely to get to happen to you is a bear attack if you're feeding them or deer antlers through the uh, windshield of your car. So we moved to the coast of South Carolina. We had hurricanes, water spouts, uh there was a major earthquake in the late 19th century, and minor uh, and some minor shakings and building destruction since. We had sharks, we had jellyfish, <laughs> we had four kinds of poisonous snake, and uh, when I added it all up, I said, "Gosh, I really am glad we moved to South Carolina." <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, this, I suppose this gets to that question of living in Carolina or, or living down in Florida. I was always particularly disturbed before I was exposed to any of the ideas of Von Mises or the Acton uh, Institute or any of those people. Um, on, on two particular issues, Dr. Fleming, I'd like your take on this. The idea that... Uh, People can go and live in Florida in places that are known to be prone to hurricanes such that insurance companies won't even offer you insurance, but um, we're constrained to offer these people insurance via our taxpayer dollars. And also the issue of price gouging. I know these are two separate issues, so-called price gouging. So I wanted uh, – th- these are tangentially related to yeah. this, but uh, I-, I think it's probably important for people to get a Fleming Foundation position on on the idea of being able to live on land that's uninsurable but ends up being insured by taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And then what happens in the case of a disaster should uh, price gouging so-called uh, be outlawed and why or why not?
0: These are both two very good questions. The the first one, the obvious answer is you pays your money and you takes your choice. Hmm. Of course, the great E. E. Cummings parody of that: you pays your money and you doesn't get your choice. <laughs> Ain't freedom grand, and uh, which is the way we live. You know, I, I I pay my money, but I don't get a choice. I d- I don't get to choose. So if you want to, you know, there's a scene in um, Little House on the Prairie where the, uh, the Wilders go off and live, I don't know, in the Dakotas, and it's in Indian territory, and they build a house, they're, they, they're plowing the field, and the Indians are getting more and more active, and finally the uh, cavalry patrol comes and says, you've got to move. You know, you have no right to be here anyway. They're homesteading uh, without any claim on the land, and, uh, and the idea that the U.S. cavalry exists to protect them, I mean, you know, people are paying taxes for the army, so and and it's a very sad scene because Charles, the the, the husband, the father of uh, of the author, is obviously a ne'er do well. I mean, he may, he's a visionary who can't seem to run a farm or make a dough out of anything. And as they, and it's one of the most beautiful scenes in American literature as they ride away, and his wife says, "Don't look back, Charles. Don't look back." But you know, they they chose to go out into Indian country. What kind of incredible naivete was it and if you choose to build your house on the Mississippi River which floods it you know every ten years or you choose to live in some disaster area then um, you know somebody will insure you by the way if you pay high enough but it you know it, the, the odds may not be in your favor and so you're you're, you're better off just not living there it should not be up to uh, the taxpayers of the United States to subsidize people who make lifestyle choices, which is what it is.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's all well and good to, to feel bad for those people who make those choices, except when you realize they get a new house every 10 years or so. So I suppose it can't be too bad if you plan well enough. Yeah, yeah. and I don't,
0: again, I don't want to minimize the problem. There are people who have lived there for, for 300 years and... Uh, on the Atlantic on the Atlantic coast or the Gulf Coast, they have roots, they have graveyards, they have traditions, they have customs and uh, And all of that is fine. And I think if the state of Louisiana or the state of Texas or the state of South Carolina wants to wants to form an insurance pool for this. Uh, especially taxing more heavily the citizens of the coastal areas. I, I, I think there are a lot of reasonable things. I do think it's unreasonable to ask people in, in godforsaken Nebraska or Kansas <laughs> to subsidize, say, if I move back to South Carolina and want to take the risk of living on on Sullivan's Island.
1: Right. Well, goodness, it's hard enough living in Kansas as is. I mean, much less having a much less having to oh. pay for for life down in Florida.
0: Yes, excuse me. I for, I forgot. You're a, you're a Kansas.
1: <laughs> well, I have some. I have some. I have some roots in Kansas. But, but uh, but yes. I, I mean, Kansas life is not. Uh, although, um, they have their own disasters, of course, famine, uh, drought. Every place has their own disasters, Dr. Fleming. But I think you you. you point out well that it is the job of the people in, the, in that locality via subsidiarity to take care of their own. And to the man who replied to Davy Crockett, it's ultimately not our money. And we'll have to answer for that. I mean, people can look to legal reasonings all they want, but there will be a judgment. And we will have to answer for theft, uh, knowing or unknowing.
0: Yeah, exactly. We should talk about, speaking of which, we should talk about the uh, the gouging and um, I, I noticed that on CNN, they were raising the question the other day, was it, was it okay for, I forget what it was, Walmart to sell uh, bottles of water for $42 mm. or, or some, other, some other large company, which wasn't normally in the water sale business. Cicero, by the way, has, a, has some very good uh, discussion of this in the Deoficiis. You know, during a famine, if you have, if you have knowledge... For example, if you're a ship captain and you land someplace with grain and they're undergoing a famine, are you morally obliged to tell them another ship will be there in a week and that will therefore change your bargaining power? Very few free market people in America, very few Misesians would say yes. Cicero says absolutely. Similarly, he said if if you're selling a house that's known to be haunted by ghosts, (laughs) This is sort of an amusing one, since nobody believes in ghosts today. Cicero certainly believed in ghosts, as did Dr. Johnson, and and frankly, I think, who am I to to argue with them? But if you have a house that has this ghost problem, are you obliged to tell the buyer? And Cicero says, yes, you are. You're morally obligated. And a lot of this gets taken up later by St. Thomas and later on by St. Alphonsus uh, de LaGuardia. But... um, there from the from the the catholic point of view in particular and the orthodox point of view you do have you you you're simply not empowered to go out and rip off uh, and make a lot of money off people's misfortunes there there is the market it must be allowed to operate and so for example if it costs you uh, $3 to bring in a bottle of water, whereas it might have cost you fifty cents before the disaster, and you're normally you 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 try to get uh, you know fifteen, you know you try to double it you know because you got your own expenses to pay. So if you charge five six dollars for this, what would otherwise you'd be charging a dollar for? Um, that's fair. That's that's a that's a question of market activity but when people are dying is it right to withhold a bottle of water unless they unless they come up with 40 50 60? Well that that's clearly an immoral exploitation of your fellow human being. It's a kind of slavery. It r- ripping people off is quite different from uh simply uh, responding to market incentives. And that you could make a little more money because you're taking more risks, you you're, en- you're engaging in uh in especially strenuous activity, all of that can be understood up to a point. But when it comes to actual exploitation, I'm not saying it should be illegal, because I think the, 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 if government steps in before long, it'll be uh, impossible to make an honest profit. But it, it, it is certainly something which Christians should condemn, and, uh, and companies owned by people who claim to be Christian should be, should be punished by
1: avoiding their products and their services. Well, Dr. Fahm, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to make sure that we discuss before wrapping up today's episode?
0: I just have one, one final thought, and this is a general thought about charity and welfare charity as enjoined by Christ and his apostles and by the church for two millennia charity involves the free will decision of the charitable person of the giver it's and his personal initiative you cannot, if you compel people to be charitable by putting a gun to their head, it is no longer an act of free will, and whatever, whatever spiritual benefit or reward in the next world they hope to get from practicing caritas, that's all null and void. It's nothing. So uh, this is not a, uh, taxing people can never replace our obligation to practice charity to our fellows. But when, as 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 you pay the way you and I do, over half of our incomes go, unless we're very clever about sheltering it, go to pay for government. This this doesn't leave me much room for hel- for helping the people who uh, I can see could could need my help. Tax-supported charity from the from uh, through welfare is subsidizing a hobby for rich liberals and giving no, oh, ever more power to the political left that is oppressing the American people. Christians are told to be charitable, and so Christians volunteering, and I'm not talking about disaster tourism, which the people who really get in the way, saying, oh, let me help, let me help, and, and are actually impeding the efforts to, to, to help people, and there's a lot of that, there's a lot of complaint about that, but most of it doesn't, doesn't make the press. But Christians are told to practice charity, but no, uh, no, no one Christian or gr- small group of Christians can assume the responsibility to help the entire world. This is something which uh, St. Augustine makes very clear and a point which St. Thomas picks up, that we, 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 have, we have natural obligations to our, to our family and friends, people we know and cherish, and, the, and it is there that our money should go first to our, to our own communities. When uh, somebody, a woman from Milwaukee, wrote Mother Teresa and said, I want to help the poor in Calcutta. Mother Teresa said, are there no poor people in Milwaukee? She <laughs> said, find Calcutta in Milwaukee. Now, this is, this is deep and brilliant. yes. You can, but you know, people in Milwaukee—that's not attractive. That's not sexy. That's not—that doesn't make you feel like you're a saint. And feeling good is half of what American uh, charity seems to be all about. It's oh, it'd be so unpleasant to go into a bad neighborhood in Rockford and and do some help in cleaning up the street. There are lots of things that can be done, or even in good neighborhoods. There's lots of there's lots of ways to be charitable. That don't involve writing a check that rich liberals are going to use to consolidate their power and going to spend 90% of the money.
1: That sentiment reminds me, Dr. Fleming, a lady who ran a food bank once told me that when there was a, a scare about the peanuts, uh, something happened with the peanuts, I don't remember what it was. She suddenly found a bunch of peanut butter donated to their food bank. Right? <laughs> so it's okay to donate when it's a danger to your children. Surely the poor children will be immune from uh, whatever dangers in peanut butter
0: I'm going to donate imported Chinese chicken wings, which are being sold. Have you read about that? Still?
1: No, no, I haven't.
0: Yeah, they've got something like a hundred thousand tons or whatever of of uh, of rat skeletons, which are being sold as chicken wow. and, uh, in American supermarkets.
1: That's not too surprising.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the uh, I, I it's not. The, it's not the Chinese people. I I wouldn't. I don't trust. It's the Chinese government. They have absolutely no scruples whatsoever, and uh, I, I refuse to buy any food products sent from China.
1: <laughs> well, rat skeletons are perhaps a bad note for us to end this episode on, Doctor Fleming. But <laughs> but we can relate it to rats uh, fleeing from a sinking ship, and sinking ships might happen near flooded areas. So um, we we and per- we, we end at the beginning. Thanks as always for your time, Doctor Fleming. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation, All Rights Are Reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.